You're listening to The Hoof of the Horse, a podcast dedicated to farriery and equine science with Dr. Simon Curtis. This podcast is sponsored by Hoof Care Essentials Foundation partner, Palm Beach Farrier Service. I'm at the Australian Farriers Conference in Brisbane, and I've just come out of one of the best talks I've been to in years. Uh, I've been listening to Michael Fruin, so I sort of kidnapped him and brought him back here to my pop-up studio. And we're going to be talking to him for the next 20 or 30 minutes about his life here as a farrier in Australia, but more especially about his life as a zoo farrier. So welcome, Michael, to the podcast. Thanks, Simon. Nice to be with you, mate. No, it's great, great to see you again. I don't know how long it is since I saw you last time, but... Um, many years ago in the UK, many years ago, is, my yeah. old master Melvin Baker. <laughs> yeah, so that's that's good. So um, the first thing is, uh, Michael, uh, back in the UK, how did you get into horses? So came from a family with horses from pretty much uh, age five. The stepfather was a steeplechase jockey, so I was introduced to the world of horses. And at age 11, I decided to get on my bicycle, ride up to Melvin Baker at Chipping Hill Forge in Whittemann, Essex, yeah. and introduce myself to Melvin and uh, ask him if he would give me a, a job as a T-boy. And Melvin said, what the hell can you do? So I said, give me a bit of metal and I'll show you. And we had a bang on the anvil and forged out some steel, uh, the poker. And he said, oh, if you can uh, keep going, we'll, we'll give you a job. What else can you do? I said, I can sweep the floor, I can make the tea. So that's pretty much what we started doing, sweeping the floor and passing tools. So. From age 11 right through to age 15, I spent every single weekend, every night after school at Chippenhill Forge with Melvin Baker and, and the other apprentice farriers there. And uh, around about age 15, 16, Melvin said, you're not gonna go away, we better get you an apprenticeship. And as you know, those days were COSAR, a council of small industries in rural areas. Mm-hmm. And it was off to Hereford for the, the big interview and the big assessment with a worship company. And uh, I was fortunate enough to be one of the ones grant aided by COSARA and got an apprenticeship uh, along with great guys like um, Spuddy Allison, who you'd know real well, yes. so, and, and Dave and a few of the other ones from that. Uh, Mark Evans was in my year as well, so some super guys, yeah. So a good bunch. A good Probably. bunch of guys, great, a great grounding at Hereford, super teachers out there. Alan Bailey was a sensational and taught me so much from Alan Bailey, and uh, same with Dave Duckett and uh, Graham Sutton, you know, and Williams yeah. and Tommy Wright, marvellous guys. So. And you never went in the Royal Oak then? Uh, no, we uh, we went in just about every bar you shouldn't have done. That was the David Garrick, you know, the one with the SAS drunk. We were told not to go in there, so the first thing you do when you're told not to go somewhere is you go there. So. Yeah. And you, you still have, despite being out here quite a while, you still have a little bit of an Essex accent, don't yeah, you? Yeah, I do. Been out here about 31 years now. Oh, so, yeah, so I try to get back regular because all the family's in the UK. Yeah. So I married a British girl out here as well, so we met out here. So, so we've raised our family here. Our, two children born in Australia, so yeah. All right. So you, you did your apprenticeship in the UK and uh, not far south of me in, in, in Essex. Right. Mm. And uh, and then, so what got you out here to Australia then? Even at age 11, I went into my careers teacher at school and said, uh, you know, when I finished school, I want to uh, become a farrier and I want to go and live in Australia. I, my mother's brother, my uncle Michael was living in Sydney, Australia and sending me letters in those days, the old blue airmail letters, telling me how it hadn't rained for three years and 
in, growing up in Essex, as you know, a lot of rain, a lot of cold, and I thought, I'm, I'm coming out. I love the water, I love sailing and boating, so I wanted to get out to the water. So even right at that age, I wanted to get out to Australia. My careers teacher told my parents I was a dreamer because he was a school teacher, and you won't be able to go to Australia because he's a school teacher. You can't get in Australia. And he said, and your son's not smart enough to get in as a farrier because, you know, they're taking guys with virtue PhDs these days. So uh, nevertheless, we went around him, and here we are. We uh, became a... Uh, Dip WCF Farrier and came and lived in uh, in Sydney, Australia. Well, I, I was funny enough before you even said that. I was thinking, uh, was it a problem immigrating? I mean, it, it, you you got in okay. I was very very fortunate when I first arrived in Australia. Um, we struggled to even buy um, uh, anvils and forges. You sort of had to special order them. So it was it was uh, quite a different country, Sydney, to what it is today, where everything's readily av available. Um, so when I got here, I was very fortunate. I got to work with some uh, great racing farriers, Steve Head at Randwick. Uh, also got to meet up with uh, Dr. Michael Robinson at Randwick Equine Centre, Treve Williams, Percy Sykes. So in no time at all, I was working with those guys in around the Ram Randwick Racecourse, mm -hmm. uh, or as Royal Randwick, as they used to call it in those days. And uh, then I got introduced to Billy Neville, who's a fantastic farrier you would know in the Hunter Valley. And I went out and helped Billy and Billy's family, and we worked really closely there. Billy then sent me into the yearling sales, and I was fortunate enough to uh, shoe a, a, a young thoroughbred with some limb deformities that was going through the sales and try to balance it up and pulled out the uh, anvil and forged up some shoes and shot the horse. And unbeknown to me, it was in front of uh, Jack and Bob Ingham, who at the time was the biggest racing entity in Australia. And uh, the bloodstock manager came over and said, hey, we want you, we're gonna offer you a job. And what can we do for you? So I said, well, I need my immigration. So before I knew it, I was full-time employed by Ingham Bloodstock as the head farrier. And then they handled my immigration from there. And we had a horse at the time called Philile that had a few problems and we managed to get Philile going and we got him a win. And um, they had a lot of foot problems at Ingham Bloodstock in those days. They had 130 horses in full-time racing and they uh, probably had about 80 horses out with hoof-related um, problems that were keeping those horses out of work. Uh, within around about five months of being in the stables, we didn't have a single horse out with hoof-related lameness and we were winning the Australian Premiership, which is where the stable should have been. And then on this one particular day, it's called Slipper Day in Australia, it's a big day, we actually took out every single race at a stable and went jockey, we went for the card. It had never been done in Australia. Yeah. So everyone was very happy. And um, Vic Thompson, who was a marvellous trainer at the time, came to me and said, uh, you know, everyone's happy, is there anything we can do for you? And I said, well, I'd like my immigration. And he said, oh, you're going to have no problem with that. He said, you just played the Prime Minister of Australia's horse. <laughs> so uh, with, within no time at all, Dip WCF farriers were down as um, uh, an instant uh, intake into Australia. The Prime Minister of Australia and the thoroughbred industry of Australia had identified the importance of good farrier care in Australia. So you could come to Australia with a Dip WCF qualification and you'd get instant uh, residency, permanent residency. So one of the conditions when I went in for the interview uh, with the Australian government at the time, they asked me what was different in my training to the current training in Australia at the time, and I explained the system in the UK and how it worked, and they said, would I help to implement that type of system in Australia? And I said, I would love to, and that was something that was a condition that I would get involved with the colleges and the universities and the associations, which I did. I did that probably for about the next uh, 10 years, worked extensively with the universities, the um, the uh, Ferry Associations in Australia and the, the uh, training TAFE institutions 
uh, in teaching and educating Australian farriers. So, and working closely with the industry to lift the standard of the industry and and try to. Uh, yeah, don't get me wrong. There was very high standard of farriers. Well, industry as I was well, going to say, just, we just worked together as a team to to try to improve that, especially in New South Wales in particular. I tried to improve that training mm. and so forth at that time. I mean, my my experience around the world is in every country in the world there are good farriers, but it's just the number of them. And actually, sometimes it's not the good farriers you have to improve, it's the bottom level, isn't it? You have to lift up. And that, that's what yep. basic training does. It, it, yep. it lifts the bottom third up. Yep. The, the top third take care of themselves. Yeah, definitely. I always used to say when I used to meet uh, young Australian farriers and older Australian farriers who I helped in my early days in Australia, that I was spoon-fed. I'd gone through the British system. I was very fortunate that we in, the, in Britain at the time we had a great system of training. We had a registration council as well that was keeping control of the farrier industry in the UK. And here in Australia, even to this day, there's a lot of guys trying to drive the Australian industry in that type of direction with registration and and uh, yeah, more seat, uh, continuous professional development and stuff like that. Um, and they, some of the Australian farriers get quite frustrated that it um, isn't moving forward. But as I, as I said to them, yeah, this all started back in 1066 and the registration had <laughs> hey, come about 19, 1976 or something like that. Don't give the Norman <laughs> French any credit, please. <laughs> So, yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah, I think I think um, you know Australian Ferry has just been moving forward in leaps and bounds. It's really going well. So yeah, it's great. And and there are so many people in Australia with no registration that do shoe their own horses. But you know, I've met five at this clinic on the weekend. Have come up to the tray stand and spoken to us. And all they're looking for is help and education. So yeah. even to this day, we really work on trying to offer what help and support support we can do as qualified farriers to the, to the guys who want to better themselves. Well, I think that's, that's already come through, and with your talk today, your enthusiasm for passing on education, you know, it, that's a real virtue. We, we've had too long in our craft where anything and anybody's known, they've kept close to their chest, haven't they? Yeah, definitely, definitely. You know, you know and, and we need to share this information. It's the only way we move on and move forward. And, and, and with that, I'd like to get onto your speciality, Mick. How did you get into zoo work? So when it first happened, I was in private practice. So I'd set up a business called Through and Forge, and we had about, at the time, we had about 600 horses on the northern beaches of Sydney and in the Sydney metropolitan area. And I was also consulting at the time to the University of Sydney in some ferry training programs and veterinary training programs for 50 of that students. And the uh, Taronga Zoo, which is the major zoo in Sydney, the head vet there, a chap by the name of Dr. Larry Volganis, who's a remarkable guy, contacted them for assistance with a, a lame giraffe at the time, and they put him in touch with me, and I came in from shoeing to a phone call uh, on the old answer machines in those days, on the tape recordings, uh, amongst all the horseshoe messages, uh, this is Dr. Larry Volganis, I have a lame giraffe, could you give me a call? And I just ignored it, I thought it was a joke, and finished my day and sat down to a cool beer and ignored the call. The next evening, the phone call was there again with you probably thought that call was a wind up. I'm Dr. Larry Volganis, I've been recommended by Sydney University. And I rung the guy back and uh, a few days later, I found myself out at Taronga Zoo uh, looking at a, a, a lame giraffe, which I expected someone would be holding on a head collar and parading in front of me and leading it up and I'd pick up its feet and look at it. Instead, I was handed a pair of binoculars, pointed into a moat, <laughs> and dragged down and said, that's him over there, can, or that's her over there, sorry, and can you work out why she's lame? So 
we sort of looked and uh, I knew nothing about giraffes, you know, obviously nothing at all. So I, I looked and just uh, applied, uh, just used applied anatomy from my days with Alan Bailey and started thinking anatomically mm. on the structure of the giraffe and, and looking at the, the problems that were presenting. And it was clear to see that we had collapsed underrun heels. We had extremely long dorsal walls with uh, an impaction of a medial deviation. The two, uh, both medial and lateral claws had grown together and okay. were, were tipping. Um, at the toe, there was also a possibility of uh, laminitis. I wasn't sure if giraffes could get laminitis, but you could clearly you know, see. You Michael, I'm already in stretching. awe of your ability. What you can see through a pair of binoculars. But <laughs> <laughs> well, it was it was quite funny. Uh, actually, one of the things while I was looking for the binoculars, Larry said to me, "Look out!" And one of the females took a strike at me, but um, I was so engrossed in looking yeah. at the feet, I hadn't seen this huge neck come down and take a swipe to say, "Clear off! You shouldn't be in here." So. So you do realise, you know, the, the more that you do with these animals, that they are wild animals, they are extremely dangerous, and you've got to show a lot of respect when you're in there for the animals. So, But the keepers keep a good eye on you when you're working in all the zoos. You know, they're, they're, they're there to look out for you. So uh, was this... Did you have to trim it? Did, was she um, well, what, down on the ground? The next sort of phase, what we did, we returned to the vet clinic. We got a full hospital at Taronga Zoo, and we, we sat down and we had a debrief, and I basically outlined the problems that we just... Um, spoke about and I said look what, what's there let's look at research what, what papers are there what anatomical stuff is there and there was nothing in those days we didn't have the Googles we didn't have the internet there was very little available there was a few dead frozen limbs you know that were in the zoo from a, an animal that had died years ago but th there was no horn structure to look at I had no idea what was underneath uh, the other thing in those days they um, uh, they had a no handling policy at Tronga Zoo, so these were totally wild animals, you couldn't go near them, so the, the only way this animal was going to be treated was with a full knockdown. There was a massive risk that when the animal was going to be knocked down that she would die under the anaesthesia because the drug mm -hmm. they used was extremely dangerous to human beings. Uh, one Just one droplet of the drug onto the human skin would put you in a cardiac arrest. So. Um, Anyway, a decision was made by the zoo and the zoo management, the Taronga Foundation, that she would be euthanized if we didn't try something. So we decided to knock her down. There was a secondary risk that when she went down under that drug, she would yeah, break her yeah. neck, obviously. Yeah. And there was the complication of keeping the blood flow going to her head. So a, her, a neck board was, was constructed for that to keep her neck and head elevated to make sure the blood was going to her head. And the amazing anaesthetist team at Sydney Uni worked out how to get a balance that we could put her under. They worked out a treatment time of around about 30 minutes, but wanted us to work on a 20 minute yeah. treatment time. So I worked with a team of farriers, uh, qualified farriers, and also some young apprentices who I want to take them in for a bit of a mentor for them as well. So we worked a program of what we would do. So each one of us would have a singular limb to work on. And I would work on the limb that the clear lameness was evident in to see what was going on with that. And then we would cross with each other to, to double up on anything that needed doing. Uh, had a great group of guys, uh, a young student at the time, Sandy Parker, who's now one of our Australian Olympic farriers, another chap, Graham Moxie, who was a, a good friend of mine, qualified farrier. And we went in with a team, the draft was um, knocked over, and uh, we managed to get in. And it was basically when we got under there, it was like dealing with two draft horse feet on each limb. There was heaps of toe on there and fortunately for us we took in every tool you could think of to trim off what could be underneath but when we actually got underneath there just a good pair of uh, GE hoof cutters did the job of a strong rasp can't beat it. and you can't mm. beat it so we just debrived and trimmed up all the excess growth and looked yeah. at medial lateral and of course, yeah, yeah, the, the, the main problem you have is that you've now got this very long-legged animal on its side haven't you correct and I've done one or two horses yeah. put down and on an operating table or on the ground 
and we're so used to working on them standing. Yeah. That again is another complication, isn't it? Definitely is. Yeah, the, the beauty of them, they've got such long legs that you can actually pick their legs up and put them between <laughs> your legs when they're down, which is great. So you can actually get them between your okay. legs, but you are right, they're on their side. So uh, we, do, we do a full assessment of them standing and make notes of where we're gonna trim and how we're gonna trim. Uh, that was sort of all in part of the plan. I, I wrote a plan before we went in on exactly how we were going to do it. We also, uh, when we go in, we do uh, a whole biosecurity system of ourselves to go in, how we're going to biosecurity going into yeah. the animal. We also work out all the tools we're going to take in and we do a tool count going into the enclosures and we do a tool count when we exit the enclosures. So we're, we're cross-checking absolutely everything all the time. Almost sounds like it's done with surgical precision, like yeah. uh, like in an operating theatre. And the other thing I'm interested in is these zones. So you've got three zones. Yeah, that's that's hot, warm and cold. Yeah, that's more today. So today, uh, what we've done moving forward, you know, many years on, we we I decided it was crazy putting these amazing animals under uh, a full anaesthesia just to have a hoof trim, you know, or, or a foot abscess dug out. So. We worked with the management of Tronga Zoo and we brought in a new program where they now allow you to handle all the animals. So all the animals moving forward are handled from as soon as they come into the enclosure and they're trained to present their feet. So it's very different how we do it today. But because the animal is obviously alive and we're not using any local and most of the times, so we're just asking them to present and then we're going in very close, obviously with hand and face contact to the animals to work on these hooves. Um, so what we do to try to make things safer, we have a call zone, which is pretty much where we'll have any spectators will stand in and where we will set up, that's our setup zone. Then we'll have a warm zone, which is the zone where we'll bring our tools into. That's the area where we'll bring everything in that we're gonna use working on an elephant, for example. And then we'll have the hot zone, which is actually at the, at the coal face, so it's been right on the animal working. And we'll absolutely limit how many people are in that zone. It's normally one keeper and one farrier and then everyone else will assist behind. Everything we use is passed back into the warm zone and then back into the cool zone. Anything when we're working on an elephant, for example, anything that a, uh, a human being could pick up or take, an elephant will reach with its trunk and take in a millisecond. Absolutely Not just bums then. No, no, they're, they're really... I, of, I often call Tang Mo my Thai girlfriend because as soon as I go in there, she um, we didn't actually talk about it in the presentation, yeah. I can uh, actually go in to work on Tang Mo the distance from the enclosure from the veterinary hospital is probably a distance of about a quarter of a mile. We'll often wait for vet students and other vets from around the world to maybe come in and see what we're doing. And um, we'll radio down to say we're coming down and the keepers say, no, we know, Tangmo's already in and she's got her foot up. So they've got this remarkable sense of smell, this remarkable sense of memory. And uh, you know, they'll actually have their foot up presented. And it's quite amazing. Uh, at first I thought maybe this was coincidental, but Tangmo actually got, uh, which is a bit rarer, a, a, a hind limb infection. And when I went down there, she was with a hind foot up on the on the rail, ready yeah. for me to work on her. So, well, I, I didn't cover it, of course, but you, so you so you start with this giraffe, you you've proven your competence to the zoo and your skill and knowledge, and then it's expanded out, hasn't it? Because Absolutely, yeah. You, yeah. You, so you've worked on all sorts of uh, wild. Ungulates, really? Absolutely, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So pretty much all the ungulates that you can name at some stage now, I have worked on them with with the Tronga Zoo and the Tronga Foundation. So we've also introduced the program into other zoos and parks around the world where we share everything is shared, nothing is secretive. Anything we do, anything we find, we share, and the other zoos are doing the same to us. So all the information is. So it's all about conservation is the key thing. Yeah, it's really about the conservation of these endangered species to try to find a, a good outcome to keep them 
in, in the uh, enclosures around the world where obviously they're protected, but we can on-breed and, and reintroduce new species. You know, we, we're actually got zoos and parks now that are breeding animals and release them back into the wild, into their natural habitat, which is quite remarkable. So, uh, yeah. you know, even with the with the white rhino, white rhino yeah, numbers I saw coming you, down. Yeah, yeah, white, yeah. white rhino, and how many of those are left in the world? Uh, I think there's about 17,000 white rhinos left in, yeah. the, in the world, but, but the then, northern rhinos are uh, about down, about about down to number three now, and the, and the the male has actually died. So that's probably the end of. I'm not sure how they whether they were able to recover sperm or. I was going to say they, yeah, they, or or they'll crossbreed, yeah, clone or crossbreed. Yeah, you could be right, but it's quite sad. And the the, the only two weeks ago, um, when I was in the UK, Zimbabwe has announced that they want to reopen hunting, which is criminal. You know, these beautiful yeah. animals. So just for sport. So, mm. Yeah, it's it's quite sickening when it you is, see really. people. That, mm seem to think it's clever to shoot you know a large yeah mammal yeah and unfortunately they're they're you know, like the elephant they're hunting for their tusks because of uh, people in asia think it's for medicinal purposes and so forth yeah. so yeah quite quite uh, yeah it's very sad sad yeah but on a, on a more positive you've obviously contributed to um <clears throat> well animal welfare way outside what you thought you were getting into as a young man. Absolutely, well, never in my wildest dream would have dreamt that the uh, journey of dealing with um, exotic animals and endangered species has taken me where it has. So, you know, it's just very rewarding, you know, the work that you do and to see these animals uh, non-weight bearing when you go in and then you can work out systems of, you know, what's going on, all applied anatomy, just thinking with applied anatomy, thinking yeah. outside the box, thinking naturally, working with the fantastic products that are on the market to us today as various and then putting those products into the care of these uh, endangered species so uh, yeah, very no, very was, rewarding more I mean, rewarding than any income obviously well yeah <laughs> you can't put a price on it really no you, and and um i i picked up on on a number of things i love the fact that barbary sheep You've put extensions on them. That's correct, yeah. Learned all that from you from the early days as a young man, studying you and listening to you or what you were doing. And then again, bringing that in and applying it here with the applied anatomy, looking at how we could do, what we could do to help them. And uh, so we've used toe extensions, lateral extensions, heel wedges. We generally have, again, limited time. The less time we can keep the animal under, under an anesthetic, the better. So I've always found Superfast is a great product to use because it's very quick, it adheres very quickly, and we can model it into the shapes we want. And it bonds, it's strong enough for that weight of animal. Obviously, <coughs> as we get into bigger, heavy animals, we move to different products. I just think if anything encourages you to learn to work quickly, some of these animals because you also had a picture of a pygmy hippo which you said was the most dangerous animal you've worked yeah. on it. and people think of pygmies as almost like these cuddly yeah. hippos yeah. cuddly pig-like animals when they open their mouth a they could pick you up in their mouth yeah and, and b they have these tusks which just look like sabers don't they? absolutely and and the best way i describe a pygmy hippo is you know the alsatian dog when you see the alsatian dog at a client's yard and you think can I stroke him or is he going to bite my hand off? They, they've got that really good uh, poker face where you can't tell whether they're friendly or they're non-friendly. That's the pygmy hippo. He'll he'll give you this real little, I'm a cute pygmy hippo mm -hmm. and you're just going to put your hand in. He'll open that mouth and he is literally like a, a Staffordshire bull terrier, you know. <laughs> he'll lock the jaw down and rip your arm off. So, so yeah, a lot of respect all the time when we're working and, um, again, safety is priority when we're working on these animals. So, But they they are like children. They love watermelons. So we always try to find out what their distraction is 
and uh, we work with with uh, reward with the keepers so uh, that one that you saw in the photo that's Fergus he's quite a character and he'll he'll have his uh, watermelon while I inspect his feats and see what problems he's got and how we can help him <laughs> I, I'm, I'm really hoping that my life never depends on an animal liking a watermelon but anyway <laughs> uh, so you, you, you're still doing lots on elephants and I was interested that you said that it's the fourth digit or the, the that, that gets the most damage. So can you explain why on an elephant the fourth digit gets the most yeah, damage? Yeah, what they do, they will generally use that just like we would uh, our hand. They will, they will use the fourth digit to break down their feed and they will, they will literally will crush trees with it or um, or watermelons as an example. <laughs> or anything you offer in there, they'll actually use that to break down their food. Um, and because they use that digit so much, they'll generally get a lot of damage done to it. And it's, again, out here, particularly in Australia, we get extreme weather conditions. So we get uh, droughts, we get extreme dehydration of their um, horn capsules. And then we get the opposite, we get floods, you know, extreme rain. So we get these hydration, dehydration, and the, the uh, horn tubers, you know, just don't adapt, adapt. It's just like hoof wall separation. So we start to see cracks and cavities in the lower margin of the foot. That then gets damaged by substrate from the sand and gravels in the enclosures. And then uh, as that breaks down, it then becomes mechanical underloading, and then we get further splitting. That then moves into sensitive structures like the laminae, and then we get laminal bleeds, and then we get prolapses in the laminae, and then we get granulation tissue and prowl flesh start to grow out of those. And they, they get really badly um, subsolar necrotic abscesses and uh, a great deal of problem being sort of recognized all around the world with zoos and parks you get this like it's often described as like crab meat that starts to grow out it's sort of a granulation tissue yeah. that's trying to form but it can't keratinize back in the horn so it just keeps re reappearing reappearing so what we've developed a technique where we can um, debride and curate it which is what was everybody was doing but then what we do we can pack the cavity using a product called an australian product called mercurocrane we use uh, Equilox reconstructions to reconstruct the whole cavity itself. Yeah. We try to get subcellular weight bearing to stabilize the, the capsule of the digit to keep the horn as stabilized as possible. And then what we can do then, we can now repack under pressure because we've got this support system around it, repack under pressure with the mercurochrome. And then we can break down that uh, necrotic material to see well, there. Yeah, exuberant growth. And That's of course, it, yeah. it's no different really. I mean, we were talking about this about uh, with a thoroughbred prolapsing through the sole, yeah, exactly, and you yeah. know a hospital plate or a pad, yep. putting some pressure back in it, but yep. also uh, making sure there's no reinfection. Yeah. So you're, you're working on two things at once. Yeah. And then you get slow but sound healing, don't you? Definitely, that's it. It's, it's yeah, a process, but it's rapid yep. growth, which is just yep. prolapsing through again. Yeah. And then, and then what we do once we've sort of got to that condition, what we like to do is um, clean it all out, check it, re-radiograph, re-X-ray, just make sure there's no um, further problems or anything deeper and then what we again we use the um, equifane CS the copper sulfate and this is quite new to us but what we've worked out is if we pressure pack it that it starts to grow down as a normal hoof so instead of that crab meat like granulation tissue keep reinfecting it now does keratinize because it's under pressure and what got me thinking of that I started thinking how would this work in the in the wild, you know, be more in water holes, going down water holes, they're gonna probably pack clay up against that granulation mm -hmm. tissue. So I started thinking, rather than just depriving curate and leaving it as an open cavity, that it could, can, let's try putting some pressure against it with some medication, obviously with the copper sulfate and so forth. And uh, it's been a, a big breakthrough because they're all starting to grow down really nicely now. I mean, I think that one of the other things that came across was away from farriery and your direct skill with, with the rasp and the knife and the cutters, 
uh, was the way you put some thought within the team into the substrate. And even when you said about the hippos coming out of the water, having a higher level in their enclosure, obviously to drain off more, which is closer to what they'd have in, in, in a more natural environment. And yep. so there's, there's even thinking through the management and the, and the environment that you can give them to improve this horn. Definitely. Every, every animal we work on, we really look at the holistic approach of the, the whole animal. We try to look at its natural process. Uh, we always look at the environmental impact. I think that's massive. The same with horseshoeing, is it breed, type, conformation, environment. That's some of the key yeah. things that are going to cause all your problems. So we, we look at that, that holistic approach. We try to look at what's going on in the natural habitat and what they will be doing and then try to bring that into their enclosures. And as, as you say with the pygmy, one of the things what we needed to do was give a raised, elevated area so he could come out of the water, lay down, relax, eat, and sort of get some aeration around his digits and so forth and reduce the risk of the infections that they were seeing. We also noticed um, in that particular enclosure that the, the pools that they were swimming in had a, a pebble creek, which was really abrasive. And as they were swimming, they were kicking their toes against it, which was just like a raft. It was just taking down that outer keratinized horn and damaging it and taking them back to that sort of the water line. And then through there, that was splitting and becoming infected. So by replacing that with a neoprene pool system, they, do, they no longer do any damage. So it's just that lateral thinking all the time. You've got to just sort of yeah. look at the bigger picture and see it's not just about doing the shoeing but it's that whole team we, we always talk to the keepers we always talk to the vets it's not just a single fairy thing that that's a whole team working together for the best outcome for each individual animal in its enclosure well now at this point uh, Mick I need to ask you a deep philosophical question it sounds interesting well uh, what I'd like to know is what is the most important thing that you've learned in your life uh, the most important thing in, in one word is integrity. I reckon that's the most important thing in life. I think if you've got integrity, you're going to always do well in life. Well, that's, that's great advice to all of us. Um, and I'm going to work on that one. <laughs> <laughs> but um, look, Michael, it's been great. It was great listening to your presentation earlier. Uh, we've got a dinner to go to. We have, we? yeah. We're yeah. we good. So I've got to thank you for, for that presentation today and especially for doing this podcast. Uh, it's outside the box. You, you've already told us you think outside the box, but the, the, you know, just to show in this world of farriery that it isn't just always about horses' hooves, and you've, you've, yeah. you've taken things a step further. So thank you for sharing that with us. Great to talk to you, Simon. Real honour. Cheers, mate. All right, mate. We'd like to thank Hoofcare Essentials Foundation and their partners for sponsoring this episode. You can find out more information at hoofcareessentials.com. You can follow more of Simon's work on Instagram and Facebook at Dr. Simon Curtis. To get in contact, please email thehoofofthehorse at gmail.com. And for everything else, go to drsimoncurtis.com. Thanks for listening.